Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. An 18-year-old named Anthony Vega Cruz was driving to get dinner when he was pulled over by police. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. A collision course between a teenager and an officer leads to a fatal shooting. We look at racial profiling and policing in New England, where a disproportionate number of black and brown drivers are pulled over for traffic violations. We don't have any racial, uh, um, any officers here that are racially profiling. And it's been a year since the first sale of legal recreational marijuana in Massachusetts, but that hasn't stopped people from buying the stuff on the black market. Plus, what's up with that road name? It doesn't make sense to me, you know? Like somebody said, oh, I know what we're going to call this road. The High Low Biddy Road. High Low Biddy 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 High Low Biddy Biddy High Low Biddy Road. High Low Biddy Biddy. It's next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Morgan Springer, producer of Next and your host today. Thanks so much for joining us. We're starting out the show with a story about marijuana, cannabis, pot, whatever you want to call it. Recreational marijuana is legal in three New England states, in Massachusetts, Maine, and Vermont. In the other three states, medical marijuana is the limit. Massachusetts hit the one-year mark this week, one year since the first recreational marijuana stores opened in the state. And one of the big goals was to get cannabis off the black market. But over the past year, illegal sales have not stopped, and licensed stores are actually having a tough time getting enough marijuana to meet demand. New England Public Radio's Nancy Cohen has the story. Another cannabis store is getting ready to open in Massachusetts. Tincture boxes, uh, gummy chews boxes, and some examples of how we package our flour as well. That's Brandon Pollock, CEO of Theory Wellness, pointing out a display in his soon-to-be-open store in Chicopee. But getting enough weed is a challenge. It's a very difficult market right now to purchase wholesale cannabis to then sell to customers. His company already owns another recreational store and two medical dispensaries, along with a cultivation facility. We've seen continued growth month after month. Every day we have, say, 50% returning customers and 50% new customers. Pollock says when Massachusetts rolled out the recreational market a year ago, cultivation facilities like his were still set up to serve medical customers, a much smaller market. So now they supplement what they grow by buying wholesale when it's available. By law, they can only buy from licensed growers in Massachusetts. You can get into bidding war situations or just sort of these first-come, first-serve situations where it's difficult to find what you're looking for at times. But the supply problem isn't stopping new stores from opening. The marijuana company Insa just opened a new one in Salem. So we have the Incredibles Peanut Butter Buddha Bar. At Insa's East Hampton store, a customer is buying an edible, pre-rolled joints, and more. 
Okay, so your total is going to be $186. INSA CFO Peter Gallagher says most of the time he limits sales to only a quarter of an ounce of flour at a time, even though the state allows sales of up to one ounce. Gallagher says other retailers are doing the same. That's indicative of a market that is undersupplied. He says part of the challenge is growing pot legally doesn't happen overnight. It takes time, you know. If you think about how long it took us to go from proof of concept to licensed and and cultivating, and then from cultivating to harvesting, and with finished supply available, that took us over two years. Demand is so great, INSA doubled its cultivation capacity in August, and now it's doubling it again. The supply shortage got worse this fall after the state banned vaping cartridges, which were 20 to 30 percent of legal purchases. Some vaping customers shifted to the black market. Others stuck with the stores and started buying flour instead. Gallagher says the supply is also stymied by a bottleneck during required testing. There are only two licensed testing labs in the state. At CDX Analytics in Salem, laboratory assistant Kate Stablanco is preparing a sample for testing by grinding it using a mortar and pestle. The distinct scent of marijuana wafts into the air. <laughs> it takes some getting used to, but I worked at a brewery before this, so I'm used to smelling like recreational substances after work. Pot that's sold in stores in Massachusetts must be tested for things like pesticides, bacteria, yeast, mold, and potency. Demand for testing in the past year has been crazy. Brian Strasnick, president and CEO of the lab, says demand for testing went from 15 to 20 samples a day under the medical program to 4,000 a month after adult use started. I see that as only exploding as more and more cultivators and dispensers come on board and become licensed. Strasnick says there have been times when it could take up to four weeks for his lab to do a complete set of tests, but he's addressing that. When the first adult retailer opened up, his lab was running one shift a day. Now it's running three. If there were more hours in the day, we would probably run four shifts. When I started, I didn't realize how much the demand was going to be. Steve Hoffman, the chair of the Cannabis Control Commission, says new testing labs are in the process of getting licensed. And, he says, the testing time is quicker now. It's down to a couple of days, so uh, I'm not convinced that there really is a supply uh, shortage right now. In most industries, a supply shortage would lead to price increases. In the case of legal pot, prices have stayed pretty much the same since the first retailers opened a year ago, mostly about three to $400 an ounce, plus taxes. Unlike other industries, though, the stores are competing with an illegal market, where prices are lower, between about $150 and $280 an ounce. Hoffman says it will always cost more on the legal market because of taxes and the cost of regulations and testing, something he says people want. They know exactly what they're getting in terms of potency. They know exactly what they're getting in terms of lack of chemicals and pesticides. I think people are going to be willing to pay a premium just to do something legal rather than illegal. Hoffman says the legal industry is still young, so it's hard to measure its effect on the black market. I would be willing to wager that it's been a uh, relatively small impact, um, you know, given that we have 30 retail stores open right now. More than half are in Worcester County and West. I would say probably more than 50 percent of consumers in Massachusetts are still buying illegally. Kamani Jefferson of the Massachusetts Recreational Consumer Council. Whether it's because, A, the prices are too expensive, or B, 
some of these dispensaries are too far. People are like, why do I need to drive an hour or two to get it where I, I can just go to the same person I've been getting it from who lives five minutes away? The legal market has begun to normalize the use of marijuana. But one Western Mass resident who did not want to be named as he buys and sells on the illegal market says the black market may increase because of the legal stores. As more and more people fall in love with marijuana and their pocketbooks are hurting, it's going to actually spill more people into the black market. But licensed pot retailers don't foresee a drop in demand. Their focus is having enough stores and supply to feed it. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Nancy Cohen. Menopause marks the end of reproductive years for half the population, and it can bring on significant symptoms as early as a decade before menopause officially hits. But even though it's such a common process, some say the care for menopause is lacking. Now there are some providers in Maine who make menopause care a focus of their practice. Maine Public Radio's Patty White has the story. During their childbearing years, women can easily find classes and support groups dealing with pregnancy and labor. But when it comes to the next big change in women's lives, menopause, that education is noticeably absent, says 47-year-old Hazel Labby of Belgrade. I didn't even really know that there was something called perimenopause. I didn't really know what that was and how, how long you could be in it and, you know, if that's what I was in. Perimenopause is the time leading up to menopause, when estrogen levels start to fluctuate and eventually drop. When Labby was in her early 40s, she says she started getting hot flashes and night sweats. Her mood swung from bouts of crying in the shower to fits of anger. One day I was in a fine mood, but I happened to go in my bedroom and my husband had left something on the floor and I just lost it. Like if he had been here, I probably would have ripped his head off. And it was something silly. And And I just thought, why am I so angry about this? The symptoms went on for years. When she brought them up during her annual exams, Labby says her doctor told her she probably was in perimenopause, but she didn't receive much advice on how to deal with the symptoms. As Labby searched for help, she eventually found her way to Susan Kamen. I am a certified nurse midwife. Nurse midwives are typically associated with helping women have babies. But Kamen, who practices in Reedfield and Brunswick, says their work extends beyond childbirth. Midwife means with women. And uh, so we are trained to take care of women throughout the lifespan. And we are actually trained as primary health care providers for women. Kamen did focus on the childbirth years for much of her 32-year career. But recently, she shifted to treatment for women going through menopause. Many years after I went through menopause myself and reflected back on my experience looking at how little care I got and how little I really knew, even though this was part of my training, but my training was about 30-some years ago in this field, um, I felt that there was this huge void and people weren't really being cared for in the way they should. Menopause is defined as when a woman stops having periods, which is usually around age 51. But it takes about a year to know that menstruation has ended. And Cayman says the time to address menopause is well before a woman has reached it. So much is happening and changing for women in their 40s or women during the perimenopause period that could have 
credible implications for their life later on. Kamen says the symptoms of perimenopause, the hot flashes, night sweats, and mood swings, can affect a woman's sleep, stress, and eating habits. And that can set women up for chronic health problems like cardiovascular disease and diabetes. That's why, she says, it's important to manage symptoms. But that's difficult to do in a typical 15-minute office visit, says Chris Cooney of Millbridge. She's a nurse practitioner who's been certified in menopause care because of what she saw as a need for more specialized care. This is one area in my practice where I get referrals from physicians. Physicians don't typically refer patients to nurse practitioners for care, but because I am able to carve out the time for these women, um, that seems to be working very well. It takes time, Cooney says, to tease out the root cause of symptoms, some of which have far-reaching effects. So a woman experiencing, for example, just very severe night sweats may become so sleep-deprived that her relationships suffer, her work suffers, and ultimately her mental health is impacted. Women can also experience bladder issues and pain when their estrogen drops as they're entering menopause. That's what sends many women Andrea Lasky's way. She's a pelvic floor physical therapist at Greater Brunswick Physical Therapy. The pelvic pain that nobody wants to talk about that's really hard. People come in in tears because they th- they're they like, my marriage, like I can't have intimate relations with my partner. Lasky says too often menopausal symptoms are brushed off as something to just accept when there are ways to address them. Hazel Labby, for example, says her night sweats are gone and her hot flashes and mood swings are far less severe now that she's taking hormones. I feel like that has really changed my life. You know, I just feel so much better. Her nurse midwife, Susan Kamen, says despite the challenges of menopause, there are benefits. And as more women talk about the subject and get help managing symptoms, they may come to embrace it as a new and liberating chapter in their lives. That was Patty White from Maine Public Radio. After the break, we talk about a teenager who was fatally shot by police and how the town in Connecticut where he was shot has a record of disproportionately pulling over people of color. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. On average, police are more likely to pull over a person of color than a white person. That's what the data shows. Connecticut, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, and Vermont have all taken steps to reduce this disparity, but these stops still happen every day. Last April, Anthony Vega Cruz was shot and killed by police in Wethersfield, Connecticut, after cops tried to pull him over. He was just 18 years old. A documentary from Connecticut Public called Collision Course tells the story of Vega Cruz and the officer who shot him, and a caution that we're going to hear recordings some listeners might find disturbing. John Dankosky spoke with WNPR reporter Vanessa De La Torre last month when the documentary came out. First of all, why is the documentary called Collision Course? 
you know, we wanted to learn more about the young driver who was shot. He was only 18 years old, and we wanted to learn more about the young police officer who shot him. So as we started to look into more deeply into their lives, you know, we kind of started seeing some systemic and personal issues that came into play. And so once you started analyzing that, it looked like they were on a collision course when their lives intersected on April 20th. Uh, this young man uh, who was killed, Anthony Vega Cruz, was known to his friends as Chulo. Tell us a bit more about him. Yeah. So, you know, he grew up in Hartford um, for pretty much all his life. And one of the things we learned about him is that his mother died um, about seven years ago. So when he was a boy, she died of cancer. And so what we learned is that, you know, that really affected him deeply. It's not something he liked to talk about as he got older, but people who know him talked about that. And, you know, he dealt with some issues at school, you know, some skipping of class. His dad, Jose Vega, he talked to us about some of those struggles in Hartford and, in, you know, growing up and, and living in a somewhat tough neighborhood. And so it was just about six months before the shooting that the dad decided to move his family to, you know, kind of get out of that tougher neighborhood and, and have this, you know, suburb to live in. Right. So Jose Vega is saying that when he first, you know, saw the house and this is, you know, a public housing uh, home, he saw it as like a mansion and he thought this was like the best place to raise his son. Um, and then we all know what happened afterward. There's another incident that you report on in which it seems as though a car that he is driving is stopped by police. But maybe you can talk us through this a little bit because it's a very interesting and important part of the story. Right, John. So a couple of weeks before the April 20th incident that led to the shooting, we know of a traffic stop that happened in Weathersfield in which the same vehicle that Chulo had and you know the same license plate uh, was pulled over uh, just after midnight. And so as the officer, and you can see this in dash cam, as the officer walks out to approach the car, the car takes off. And so we don't know for sure if this was Chulo, uh, Anthony Vega Cruz. Um, we're fairly confident, but we did talk to the girlfriend about this, Stephanie Santiago. And she says that, you know, her, her boyfriend, Chulo, mentioned this um, happened, that the, the police tried to pull him over in Wettisfield, and he got away. Vanessa, the other main character in this story is the police officer who shot uh, Anthony. His name is Leo Ulysier. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about him. Sure. So Officer Ulysier, he's known by, you know, friends and family as Junior. Uh, grew up in Hartford, you know, the son of a very hardworking Haitian family. You know, the people we talk to who know the family say they're just like really nice people, and they include Junior among those people. Parents wanted a better education for their son. And so that's when we hear that they moved to Weathersfield. You know, they also saw Weathersfield as a, as a better place for that, a suburb just across the border from Hartford. And so Ulysier, um, you know, after high school, he enters the Connecticut Air National Guard, is interested in, you know, public service, uh, also is in the Air Force Reserve. And then after the military, or actually during the military service, he also becomes a police officer. And a police officer in, in a nearby town, Manchester, which is another suburb of Hartford. And in one of the earlier incidents that you have in this documentary, um, it certainly points to something in Officer Ulysses' past that we should know as, as we think about what happened to, uh, to, to Chulo on that day. Maybe you can describe the video that you, that you have in the documentary and what happens. Sure. So one of the aspects that's pretty important in this whole story is that there are some instances where supervisors express concern about his performance, 
is police tactics under situations that are considered stressful. And so we're just going to play some video here. This is of a dash cam. This was about uh, a year and a half before the incident in Weathersfield. They have pulled over a minivan. And so this driver in the minivan was suspected of getting into some sort of disturbance at the local mall. And so Officer Ulysses is in this dash cam. And so he comes out of the vehicle with his gun drawn Turn already, the comes Turn toward the, the driver, the and he's shouting. Turn off the car! Turn off the car! Turn off the car! Turn off the car! You can see that he has, still has his gun drawn and pointed at the driver as he then attempts to open the driver's side door. So, Vanessa, we've now met the two main characters in our story, uh, the young man who shot and the police officer who shot him. Uh, Let's move forward to the day, April 20th, uh, when these two lives come together. Maybe you can tell us what happens next. Right. So, you know, one of the people, as you mentioned, we interviewed is Stephanie Santiago, his girlfriend. And she says that, you know, leading into that day, it was a Saturday, uh, late afternoon, early evening. She was concerned about him driving because the night before he had been involved in some sort of you know, incident, accident where his headlight was out. And so surrounding all of this is the fact that we learned that through our reporting is that Anthony Jose Vega Cruz did not have a driver's license. And so leading into this stop on April 20th, you know, we know those were factors that were in his mind that he knew that if he was stopped again, um, he was going to be facing some serious trouble. And so we see in the tape initially, you know, his car is pulled over And similar to the earlier stop a couple weeks prior, once the officer, a different officer, Officer Peter Salvatore, gets out of his car, once he almost reaches the vehicle, we see the vehicle take off. And so as we watch the dash cam, Elysier joins in from down the road, and you can see that he has his gun drawn, gets out of the car, shouts, show me your hands, show me your hands. And then you could see in a moment when, and this is a, a moment of contention, when... Anthony Jose Vega Cruz continues to drive. That's when you see Officer Elysier fire a couple shots into the windshield. And the officer has gotten essentially in front of this vehicle. The vehicle starts moving toward him. And the point of contention you're talking about is that one way to look at this video is that the officer was fearful for his life. He was fearful that he was going to get run over by the driver. Another way to look at it is the driver was trying to flee and had no intention of of hitting the officer as he drove away. That's exactly right. And when we talked to Stephanie, because she was in the vehicle, you know, she was saying, you know, as they were pulled over, you know, she looked over to her boyfriend and he was like just quiet. Like he was, she says, I've never seen him so worried. And so in, in her opinion, you know, her sense was that he took off because he was scared. And so when he was trying to get away, she describes it as him trying to get away and not trying to hit the officer. The the officer fires the shots uh, through the driver's side window. Um, Was he killed immediately? No, um, he died. So this happened on April 20th. He died on April 22nd. Vanessa, what happens next in this story? We have so many moving parts. Of course, we have the family, which is grieving. Um, We have the Wethersfield Police Department, which is fending off um, accusations from the family and others in the community about the policeman's actions here. What what do we know happens next in this case? So right now there's still an ongoing investigation um, being run by the Hartford State's attorney. So she's going to decide whether the use of force in this shooting was justified. And so once we learn that, whether um, Officer Elysier is cleared on that, 
that sort of determines some next steps. Say he is determined to have not been justified, then you might see some criminal charges. Um, regardless, it looks like the family of Anthony Jose Vega Cruz is going to sue the town of Wethersfield. I'm wondering if, as you've re- reported this story for this documentary over the course of the last several months, if there's anything that, you, that you've learned about this issue that maybe you, you hadn't thought about before, you didn't know before. What we ultimately came down with was a story of loss, of, of some regret, um, probably on both sides. And so I think that's what it comes down to, a local community that is, is grieving, and particularly this family, a local community that is fractured. Because when you talk to people in Wethersfield, you have people who say, why did this kid run? This wouldn't have happened if he had just complied with the traffic stop. You talk to other folks who are saying, you know what, if you're a black person or a minority in America, in Tulo's case, a Hispanic man, there's no guarantee that you're going to make it out of a traffic stop alive. So those are competing sort of mindsets, and they come to a head in Wethersfield. Vanessa Delatore is a reporter for Connecticut Public, and she's the lead reporter for this documentary. It's called Collision Course. You can find a link to the full film at our website, nenc.news. Uh, Vanessa, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thanks, John. Back in 2012, Connecticut made changes to its anti-racial profiling law. The changes clarify that police departments cannot make traffic stops based solely on race. It also requires departments to track race for each traffic stop, and if they are disproportionately pulling over people of color, they could get penalized. Ken Barone is the project manager of the Racial Profiling Prohibition Project for the state. They collect and analyze the data about traffic stops for Connecticut and Rhode Island. And he says the Weathersfield Police Department is an outlier, disproportionately pulling over people of color. We have 107 police departments in Connecticut, and we evaluate everybody using the same measures. There's only one department in the state of Connecticut that has um, uh, been identified with significant disparities across every measure um, that we've ever looked at. And there's only one department that's been identified in every analysis we've ever done, and that's the Weathersfield Police Department. But the department's police chief, James Citran, isn't having it. We don't have any racial uh, um, any officers here that are racially profiling. If I did, I'd fire him. I don't want so I don't want the grief or something like that. I don't like that. That's unfair. It's not. It's not right. It's unjust. Ken Barone stands by the data, and he spoke about the research in Connecticut and other New England states with John Dankosky. I'm wondering if you can tell us about what we know about racial profiling in New England states outside of Connecticut. <clears throat> Uh, Good question. So um, Connecticut isn't the only state over the course of the last 20 years that's been grappling with the issue of racial profiling. In fact, it's an issue that uh, most states across the country have tried to to grapple with. And um, um, in the last five to seven years, Connecticut has really been leading the forefront in how to address the issue of racial profiling. Um, and, and we've really built the most uh, comprehensive uh, system for assessing racial disparities in police departments. Um, and, and because of the work we've done here in Connecticut, the state of Rhode Island um, um, asked us to roll out the same program in Rhode Island. And so Rhode Island um, um, has followed suit uh, back in 2015 and for the last four years. Um, they have been uh, also trying to better understand um, the degree to which race and ethnicity is playing a role 
in traffic enforcement. And uh, Massachusetts was one of the first states to really try and grapple with this issue, you know, 15 years ago. Uh, And more recently, the state of Vermont uh, has jumped on board with some researchers from the University of Vermont partnering with um, all the police departments in the state of Vermont to also do an assessment of traffic stops uh, there as well. What does this data collection look like? Maybe you can give us some specifics of of what exactly you're you're trying to to find out more about. I think what every state is really interested in is um, a few things. One is are are black and Hispanic drivers disproportionately stopped? Are they disproportionately searched? And are they treated differently once they're stopped? Those those tend to be the three basic questions that um, every state that does this work is interested in. And I think what we've seen, whether it's the research we've done or research that's been conducted in states like Massachusetts and Vermont um, over the course of the last few years, um, is is there's a, a similar trend. Connecticut isn't an outlier. Rhode Island's not an outlier. Um, same with Massachusetts, Vermont as examples. Um, race and ethnicity are factors in stopping drivers, in searching drivers, and in uh, in the treatment of drivers once they're stopped. Since you've been publishing your data and since these laws have changed requiring the collection of this data, have you seen some municipalities uh, that have really taken this information and said, yeah, we're going to change, we're going to do something and, and police <coughs> differently? So we have some really good news here in Connecticut, and I think it's because we've been doing this work longer here, and I, I feel as though we'll see the same thing in a year or two occurring in Rhode Island. So in Connecticut, since we started this work, we've identified 32 individual departments as outliers at some point over the course of the last four years. And we've gone in and worked with those departments to try and figure out what exactly caused them to be an outlier in that specific year. And out of those 32 departments, pretty much uh, 31 of them um, have um, made some change to the way in which they police to try and address their disparity. And what we've seen is that um, the disparities that we identified in all of those departments have either gotten smaller or disappeared. And um, last year, uh, when we released our analysis, it was the first time in four years where we did not identify a statewide disparity um, in the state of Connecticut. Um, and um, um, that, to me, is good news. Now, we're, we're still uh, waiting to figure out if that's an outlier and if that trend will continue, which I believe it will. Um, and if that trend continues, then what that tells me is that enough departments have made um, um, enough changes to the way in which they're policing that we're starting to see the impact statewide and we're starting to see less of a disproportionate um, pattern of stopping, searching, um, and detaining drivers um, here in Connecticut. And, and I attribute that entirely to the changes that are being made uh, from those departments that we've identified in the past. You said you work with these departments that, that may be seen as outliers. What does that work look like? Uh, what do you go and tell them? So the process we have in place in Connecticut is that we analyze every department uh, and, and in Rhode Island now um, seven different ways. We then identify those departments that are outliers, and then we meet with them. Mm-hmm. And we say, okay, here's the deal. We've identified you as having outliers, and let's walk through where those where those disparities are. W- one of the suburban communities you mentioned was Newington, Connecticut. It's it's right next door to to Weathersfield, Connecticut, just outside of of Hartford. What have they done differently? So Newington was a department that we had identified um, in one of the early reports that we published um, statewide. 
And uh, like all the departments we identified, we went and we met with the uh, police uh, administrators and we um, tried to drill down and understand what was driving the disparity in their community. Um, And one of the things that stood out to us was the degree to which um, the Newington Police Department stopped drivers for um, lower level equipment violations. Um, And just to put that in context, about 10% of stops conducted in the state of Connecticut are for some sort of an equipment violation, a headlight out, a taillight out, a license plate light out. Um, In in Newington, that was closer to 30%. And so as a researcher, that stood out. Uh, And what we we noticed was that the vast majority of those stops were impacting um, minority drivers. And so we wanted to try and understand um, why that was occurring. And so the Department had sort of come to us and said, well, you know, this is really part of our roving DUI patrol. And what we found was um, out of 1,608 drivers stopped for uh, an equipment violation in Newington during that study year, um, they had only uh, arrested one drunk driver. And so uh, one of the areas that the department was able to focus on was, you know, what strategies can they put in place that will reduce the racial uh, impact on their community while increasing the number of drunk drivers that they capture. And that meant focusing on the violations where they were uh, where it was proven that they would actually um, be able to to uh, have a higher likelihood of, of identifying a drunk driver. Uh, Ken Barone is project manager of the Racial Profiling Prohibition Project at Central Connecticut State University. Ken, thanks for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you. Coming up, a new program makes thousands of online Yiddish documents more searchable, plus an odd road sign and the search for its meaning. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate and clean energy. The program that can search words in Yiddish books online is about to be unveiled. And as New England Public Radio's Jill Kaufman reports, the software developer is this benevolent engineer in France who took an interest in his family history, and then a random search online led him to Amherst, Massachusetts. Thousands of Yiddish books, plays, newspapers, and other items from the last couple of centuries are online. More than 10,000 through the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. And as Amber Clooney well knows, she's the center's digital librarian, the ability to search these items is limited. This is our website. This is what we can search by now. Right now, words can only be searched in titles. Using a Yiddish keyboard that appears on screen, Clooney types in the word SIG, Yiddish for goat. Three titles come up. This is the one. Switching screens over to a beta version of what will be a new search engine. And on the Joker site, we can search anywhere in the text. Of the book. Joker is an acronym for Java Optical Character Recognition. 
Using Joker, Clooney searches Sig again. Apparently goats are mentioned often in Yiddish writing. More than 6,000 references pop up. Oh, yeah, it's great. (laughs) Maybe not on par with Google's new quantum computer, but according to the center, several computer scientists, Yiddish scholars, this is the most comprehensive Yiddish word search engine yet, almost ready to be used by the public. Writing word search software is complex in any language. For Yiddish, many of the documents are old. They're stained. Software can easily misread what it thinks are characters. And building a digital dictionary for a language that has migrated across continents over centuries would take a very long time. And it was going to be inordinately complicated and cost $10 million minimum. And we figured this was never going to happen. Aaron Lansky, the Yiddish Book Center's founder, has traveled the world to rescue piles of Yiddish books. Since 1980, the center has become a repository for over a million. A fraction of them have been scanned into the digital library. Library. Ten years ago, out of the blue, Lansky says an email arrived from an engineer in France. And he says, I am a computational linguist living in the French Pyrenees, and I have just invented Yiddish OCR, and I would like to donate it to you so you can make your book searchable. That was the Joker program, and software engineer Asaf Urieli was offering it to the center. And I said, I'd love to give you a demo of what it does so we can see if we can maybe do a project together so that we can make this available to, to the world at large. A world that largely doesn't know how many millions of people spoke in this thousand-year-old language. It was almost erased by Stalin and Hitler, and it didn't become the language of Israel or stay the language of many Jews migrating to the U.S. and Canada. Yurieli grew up in South Africa, Ohio, and Israel knowing nothing about Yiddish. When he was a young adult, he learned it was what his great-grandparents spoke and the generations before them. He began to study Yiddish and look into his family history, and he found some resources in the Yiddish Book Center's digital library. Among other things, I was reading about the town where my grandmother was born, in Lithuania. And in Yiddish, it was Shavel. And I was thinking, oh, how nice it would be if I could actually perform a search among all their books to find all of the references to this town. And then I thought, well... Why not? Why not write the software? He figured it would take a summer. Um, And I hadn't made all that much progress after three months, but I suppose I couldn't abandon it either. The idea was too fascinating. Once he got past some of the usual challenges of how software sees page positions and rows and the letters themselves, the Yiddish Book Center and other libraries began to build the program's dictionary of words and proper names. Uriel says he has no pretension he's written the best software, and he wasn't the only one trying to crack this nut. My Yiddish pronunciation is Raphael. My English pronunciation is Raphael. Last name Finkel, a computer scientist at the University of Kentucky. Over the years, he's developed a different optical character recognition software for Yiddish that requires more human editing than Joker, which Finkel has tried, and he is impressed. It is searchable in a very fast way, which is nice. It makes about the same rate of OCR mistake as mine does. It's the nature of the problem, mistakes in understanding the, uh, the text. For instance, take the phrase, this bothers me. Here are two Yiddish dialects. Es art mir or es art mich. The first two letters of mir and mich, which mean me, are the same. But the third letter is either a reish or a final chof. And to humans and computers, those characters can look alike. No software is perfect, Finkel says. Joker is a great advance for Yiddish scholars, cultural anthropologists, families. It's built to get smarter over time through use and corrections. The Yiddish Book Center says it gets about five or six a day from a group of testers, Yiddish speakers, living around the world. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Jill Kaufman. 
You ever come across a name that makes you think, huh, what's that about? For me, it was this rural fishing community I drove to in Nova Scotia this summer called Meat Cove. For a listener of the podcast Brave Little State, it was a road in Vermont. He wrote, For the love of God, please tell me the origin of Putney's High Low Biddy Road. Producer Bianca Gaver started her quest for the origin at the Breadloaf School of English in Ripton, Vermont. This is a place where people think about words all day. Um, so I'm excited to see if they have any thoughts about high-low biddy. Everyone's noses aren't books right now. Hello. Hi. I'm doing a story about the history of Vermont road signs, and I got assigned high-low biddy road, and I'm just wondering, do you have any guesses about what that might mean, high-low biddy? I don't know why I think this, but I feel like it might have something to do with a cow. My first thought was about like a dance, kind of like a ditty, but now that I'm thinking about it, it's kind of like a little bitty. Um, yeah. Like a little bit of a ditty. Like a little bitty ditty. Maybe it's a person. Who, who is the person? Hello, Bitty Row. Oh, like first name, high-low, middle name, Biddy, last name, Road? Yeah. <laughs> I walked across campus to see if there were any more clues here about high-low Biddy. I'm going to the adorable library. It's a white house filled with books. They happen to have the Vermont road name book. Vermont Place Names by Esther Swift. It didn't talk about high-low Biddy Road, but it did talk about Biddy Knob in Rutland County. Oh, okay, okay, oh, okay. Biddy Knob is a peak more than 2,000 feet high. No one can explain the origin of its name. Biddy means a chicken or a hen. The word can also be a diminutive of the girl's name, Bridget, and it is sometimes used as a disparaging slang term for women, which is still the case. You call biddies as a slang term for, like, girls who play lacrosse and wear pearl earrings. That's what it was for me in college. Okay, so that remains a mystery. I did some more research about the definition of biddy in the dictionary and on the internet. A woman, especially an elderly one, regarded as annoying or interfering. Early 17th century, originally denoting a chicken. Of unknown origin, denoting an Irish maidservant. In Australia, a biddy is a two-for-one McDonald's voucher. Usually entitles the bear to enjoy two delicious Big Macs for the price of one. A biddy is one of those girls who wears short skirts and very high heels in very cold weather. So biddy could be a chicken, a girl named Bridget, or a woman. And as Paul Gillis, our intrepid road expert, told Angela, High Lowe's biddy was the name of a very famous harness horse that was born in 1953, sired by Holyrood Hermes, which was a famous uh, stud horse, and uh, got a reputation as a trotter. So was was the horse, you know, pastured there, or was it born there? I don't know. A horse? I clearly had a lot of work to do. My next step was to see the high-low bitty road for myself. So I drove to Putney, singing a song I made up along the way. High-low bitty, 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 high-low bitty, bitty, high-low bitty road. High-low bitty, 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 high-low bitty. There I met Michael, the question asker. My name is Michael Hudson. Uh, We're in my home in Putney, Vermont. And my question is, who or what 
was the high-low biddy, and why did they name a road after he, she, or it? It doesn't make sense to me, you know? Like somebody said, oh, I know what we're going to call this road, the high-low biddy road. And somebody else said, yeah, that's a good idea. We walked out of his house, turned right, and within 100 yards, we were on high-low biddy. Here's the, this is the road? This is it. This is barely a road. Yeah, I know. <laughs> okay, so there's a dead-end sign. It's unpaved. It's gravelly. It's very overgrown. Oh, yeah. There aren't many homes down here. So right now we're going low, Biddy. We're walking downhill. Well, I don't know. This might be high over here. Whoever thought of it, I mean, it is very fun to say. Oh, it is fun to say. It really is. High Low Biddy runs alongside a brook called Sackett's Brook. In the late 1700s and in the 1800s, this brook was the bustling home to many mills, manufacturing everything from flour to paper to flannel. Today, the ruins of these mills are still present. Over there, you'll see, I think it's called the Twinings Mill. I guess this was the Owl Mills. We got to the bottom of Biddy and crossed a bridge over Sackett's Brook. Too bad this is overgrown so much. This is the the bridge, and it's a it's a stone arch bridge. Mm-hmm. It's really cool. You know, it's one of those dry laid stone bridges that are, I believe, held together by gravity. It's called Sackett's Brook Stone Arch Bridge, and it was built by a stonemason named James Otis Follett in 1906. The stones are perfectly placed together, without any mortar holding them. Today, it's on the National Register of Historic Places. We continued down the road, where we met a Hilo Biddy resident. He didn't know the origin of Hilo Biddy, but he told us that his neighbor Tim was the person to talk to. So, um, I know Tim is home. I'm sure he wouldn't mind if he knocked on his door. He knows a lot of the history here. So we walked up to Tim's house. Hilo Biddy house, and there's horses on the sign. That's right. It's a clue. You think so? We knocked on the door. And we're told that Tim was in the shower. Is he at the early end of the shower or the late end, does it seem like? Uh, he's got about 5%. When he got out of the shower, my hopes were high. First of all, what's your name? Uh, Tim Ragel. And then? Uh, nobody really knows the answer as to why it was called Hilo Bitty. But it's, it's one of those stories that's really lost in history. We don't know. But he did have his own theory about the name. And it's also an itty-bitty road. It's a very, very short road. That's all I can... the itty. That's all. And as for the horse that I saw on his address sign, that was just a coincidence. Tim collects and restores horse-drawn carriages that he sells to museums. So I bid our question asker, Michael, farewell, and I went home to do some more research. I cracked open a digital copy of The History of Putney, Vermont by Edith DeWolf. The book was published in 1953, 66 years ago, and even back then, DeWolf wrote, the origin of Hilo Biddy is not known. This book did resolve one thing, though. Remember that horse that Paul Gillis mentioned? Given the timing of this book's publication and the birth of the horse, I was able to conclude that the road was not named after the horse. So after I left town, Hilo Biddy became the historic question of the week in Putney, Vermont. The town Facebook group was alive with chatter about the road. I began calling the families who had lived on the road and anyone who might know something about the origin of the name. I talked to the historical society, the current town clerk, 
the previous town clerk, and the Vermont State Archives. And I kept getting the same answer. Uh, I, you know, to be honest with you, I don't know a lot. I really don't remember anything about when it was named. Okay. The closest I came to discovering the origin was talking to Jim Dunham, who grew up on the road. He claims that when he was in fifth grade, his teacher, Inez Harlow, told him the origin of the name, but that he forgot. I wish I could remember. I really do wish I could remember. In one ear and out the other. <laughs> Most of the residents I spoke to said that they thought high-low came from the road starting high and dipping low. As for the biddy, the majority believed that it was about the old women who lived on the road. Some thought that there was a biddy at the high end and at the low end. They would get together and make their dandelion wine and talk about the neighborhood. <laughs> That's Edna Turner, who used to live on the road. Whoever the biddy was, her image remained strong in people's minds. The generation I spoke to clearly remembered the three older women that lived on Hilo Biddy when they were kids. Their names were Eva Turner, Elvira Rhodes, and Sarah Doyle. Here's Jim Dunham again, remembering Elvira. She always gave us homemade donuts for Halloween. <laughs> we always look forward to it. Around 10 years ago, the town changed the road name to Thwing Road after a mill that was located on the brook. But the residents missed the name. They organized and petitioned to change it back to Hilo Biddy. The Hilo Biddy name was just too fun to say and too beloved by all. That was independent producer Bianca Gaver for the podcast Brave Little State from Vermont Public Radio. You can find our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. Next is produced by me, Morgan Springer. Our digital producer is Carlos Mejia. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. Music this week is by Todd Merrill and Goodnight Blue Moon. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Radio, WBUR, WSHU, and the Public's Radio. 